All right, hey dad. Hey Shade. I have a question for you. I'm ready. Okay, do you have a favorite piece of art or like art media? I guess I do, and it's definitely shaped by long family association, but it's Jacob Lawrence's series of family pictures, the migration series, all of these that depict kind of elements of American history. Well, if you bring that one up, you have to tell the quick story of the runners. The runners is a pretty good story. So one of Jacob Lawrence's uh, commissioned pieces was done for the 1972 Olympics. And it's this wonderful picture. It's very odd perspective because the runners are coming towards you. You can see the track stretching behind. And the story is that he was commissioned to do this for the Olympics. And he said, yo, of course, I'd love to do it. Be happy to do it. And they kept asking him, is it ready? Is it ready? And he kept saying, oh, it'll be ready soon. And so the Olympic commissioning team was very nervous because they hadn't seen this and it's supposed to become a poster for the Olympics, et cetera, et cetera. So by the time he said, oh, I'm ready, I'll deliver it, they really didn't feel like they had any leeway. They couldn't say, well, you know, go back and change it, whatever else. And so he brings up this wonderful drawing with these runners in a track and field event going around the track. And there's three runners coming towards you in this wonderful perspective. You're seeing their legs kind of stretch towards you. And the Olympic Committee looked at it and said, oh, it's, it's wonderful perspective. It's great skill, but it's not very diverse. Jacob Lawrence looks at it and says, what is this? is three Olympic athletes there. I said, well, they are all African or African-American. And Jacob Lawrence looks at them for a second and says, oh, there are white runners. They're just out of the frame. They're far back in the field. And there was kind of a pause, but they ultimately used this piece of art. Yeah, that's a good one. Um, we saw that story a lot because we have a print of that in our house. We do. So that's, I think, one of the first room. like art pieces that I like know. Um, but I guess, I don't know how art inclined you are. I'm not super art inclined in terms of, you know, generations of painters, etc. But I um, got really into photography in college, which is what we're going to talk about um, today. And I feel like that's the connection. It's art, it's presentation, but it's also the political message. And so in many ways, the Jacob Lawrence feature has the art element, but it has big social commentary. And hopefully yeah. that's really what we'll dig into a bit in this episode. Yeah, completely. Um, so welcome back to Intergenerational. Last week, we did a part one of this um, episode where we talked a bit about Kibera, which is a large urban slum in Nairobi. Um, we gave a lot of background and context there, so it's probably best if you listen to that one first. Um, but we will talk a bit about kind of what Kibera is like in this episode as well. But we're actually going to start talking about, I guess, the second part of my thesis um, at Yale, which I did for the Human Rights Program. And I did that project on the ethics of photography and focused on Kibera. So I guess I'll just jump into that if you don't want to add anything before we go. I guess I will add one thing, and it's not the big picture politics we're going to get into. But one of the things that always struck me about situations like Kibera or even some of the really rural communities where, where I've worked is that you see people step out of literally the smallest three foot by five foot mud hut or corrugated metal shack. Some pictures we'll put up for this episode. And I've seen people who literally have nothing and yet they step out to go to a job interview or to church and they're immaculate. The dress is perfectly yeah. pressed. The shoes have not a spot of mud on them. And I just came from Nairobi or Kisumu or Mombasa 
30 hours before and every piece of clothing I have has mud on it. And it's a small scale example of how much imagery matters and how much this kind of back and forth between how adaptable people can be, but also how constrained they feel they have to be to fit into the norms that you have to have a perfectly pressed dress to go to church or perfectly clean slacks. If you're going to be from the rural area or from Cabrera going for a job interview. And so I do feel like this connection between form and substance really matters. And that's why I think this episode is kind of an interesting one for me to do. Yeah, I find it really interesting because I obviously don't experience the same like discrimination that Kenyan people face, especially those who live in Cabrera. But sometimes I will work in Cabrera all day and be like dirty and you smell like Cabrera and you'll go somewhere else that's kind of more touristy. And there's been times where people are like, oh, sorry, like we don't have any seats. And then I'll start talking in my American accent and they're like, oh, I'm so sorry, ma'am, like right this way. And it's like the people who live there experience so much already and then the discrimination element comes into play and people have to work so hard to look so presentable outside of Cabrera. Um, and I think that's such a travesty in itself. Right, but- to conform to the norms of of the wider moneyed society for which they're largely not a part. Right. Yeah, it's very interesting. So we'll get into that a little bit more, but I guess I'll kind of set the premise on what my project was. Um, Overall, I guess I got very interested in things like war photography and the ethics of photography. And I explored this um, through three photographs in particular before heading back to Cabrera and doing my own work. And and we'll post all of these on our Instagram if you want to see the photographs. Um, We'll post some of these and post some more photos of Cabrera. You can scroll through and check them out there and we'll post them in our show notes as well. Um, But the first photograph that I was really moved by was the photograph of the napalm girl um, in Vietnam. And it's a photograph um, that a lot of people have seen of a naked child running away after um, bombing. And it's devastating. Um, It's one of the- She's literally on fire. And yeah, she's literally on fire and she's running away and screaming. And it's one of the photographs that's actually credited with changing the tides and the impression of the war. And in that sense, the photograph is very important and very powerful. But actually what happens is the the girl who's known as a napalm girl ends up surviving. Um, her name is Fan T. Kim Fook, and she is depicted in this Pulitzer Prize winning photograph and ended up kind of coming out to talk about her experience of being the subject of such a photograph and how exploitative it ends up feeling for someone, you know, later in life to be depicted this way. And so that's the first photograph that I think really started to call into question the ethics of these photographs that can be incredibly impactful and can do incredible good. But you have to think about what the subjects of these photographs feel and what they're going to think when they look back on them and how they want to be depicted and the humanity that you're showing. So that's the first photograph that I was very interested in. The second photograph a lot of people have also seen, it's a little bit more recent. It's the photograph of the three-year-old Syrian boy um, after he drowned in the Mediterranean Sea. His name is Alan Kurdi. Um, and, you know, it's a, it's again a devastating photograph of a small child who is no longer alive, lying face down in the waves. And you can see photographs of him being picked up and moved. Um, and it, again, just like a devastating photograph. I don't really have much to say besides you look at these photographs and 
I mean, that's one for me where you see it and you instantly know the story. You know this is a kid who was crowded into a boat, way overpacked, was one of the people that fell out or the boat sank. And so you know exactly the kind of the trauma, not only to have to get into the boat in the first place, but the trauma at the end of this boy's life as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um and again, it's one of those photographs I think you look at and you're like, the ethics behind this being so widespread are kind of weird. But it's also a photograph that is credited with a huge spike in research on immigration. And it's credited with, you know, people kind of being more open to immigrants, at least for a period of time. And so these photographs, again, end up being very important. But it's kind of the question of at what cost to the people in the photographs, Um it's so much easier to look at these photographs and be like, wow, that's so sad than to have your, you know, your family members see that and that be kind of the last memorialized image of somebody. So that was the second photograph that um, I became very interested in. And the third photograph, again, very popular, um, is called The Struggling Girl. It's a photograph by Kevin Carter. It's also known as The Vulture and the Little Girl. And it's a photograph of a starving Sudanese child with a vulture in the background. The implication is kind of very clear this child is starving and probably will not last very much longer and the vulture will swoop in um it was taken what in it was taken in what is now south sudan um at a time where you know tens of people were starving in that city every day and again a pulitzer prize winning incredible photograph in terms of composition and all of this um it won again the pulitzer prize in 1994 and then four months after winning the prize the photographer took his own life um, the implication is that he took his own life due to this photograph, um, and kind of the ethics of what he saw and the, the pictures that he was taking. Um, and, and I don't want to put the, I guess, like, I don't want to put the sorrow, I guess, for the photographers of these photographs in general, though, obviously photographing things like this are incredibly hard. Um, there are people who are living this life on a daily basis. There are the subjects of these photographs that are struggling in a very different way. But it is, again, impactful to know that this photographer kind of went through this experience and found it, you know, that personally impactful. And I guess the part that that is hard is the back and forth between the pictures themselves were important, but there's also this implication that by taking the picture, you also didn't participate in helping. Right. And with a, with a child with a vulture sitting behind it, the question is, do you take the picture or do you assist the child? And the back and forth, that tension is one that you kind of see in a lot of modes. And I think of other pictures that come to mind in the same picture as well. One is a famous picture from the 80s called The Afghan Girl. It's a yeah. National Geographic cover picture of Sharbat Gula looking straight at the camera and kind of very defiant look with these piercing green eyes. And for me, there was a connection because my advisor in graduate school, we were working on neural networks and computational vision things. So what's the connection? And it was his retina identification software was used to identify her because Sharbat yeah. was found decades later. And the harshness of her life in this in the province is a it's a Pashtun community um, living in a refugee camp, and she's not quite, but she's almost unrecognizable as an adult. And it was retina software that was used to identify her. And I think 
my, my advisor's work led to that, but it also led him to not only question what are the aspects of this kind of technology we use that are useful, but also what are the downsides? And he was approached multiple times to provide versions of the retina identification software for doing border identification of refugees, for looking for terrorists at airport images and things. And so the, the technology that allows you to take the pictures, the questions about what do you do in these settings, and then ultimately what's the long term. I think it's very much like the Vulture Girl story, the photographer's inner trials over, over the ethics of the picture are part of this whole narrative. And the Vulture one's interesting because the child is like reported to be heading to a feeding station, a UN station about half a mile away. And, um, you know, reportedly she made it there, which is kind of hard to believe when you look at that photograph. Um, but the journalists who were there, you know, saw this, took the image and walked away. And so, you know, I don't know how you personally deal with that, but that's a lot of, you know, personal trauma for the photographers and journalists as well. And so I guess with this, that was kind of the framing of, you know, how do you ethically photograph poverty? How do you ethically photograph people who don't necessarily know what the impact of their image is going to be? And this kind of came up because in Cabrera, I would take photographs and I, you know, started out kind of with more of a street photography style. A lot of it was the fashion of Cabrera and, you know, there's so many interesting images and stuff to be seen. And a lot of older people will tell you that they don't want their photo taken. And as you talk to them more, you know, there's this big impression that Americans and other people, Mzungus, if you heard our last episode, come in and take these photographs and then go back to their countries and sell them for lots of money and get famous and rich. And these people don't feel any of the impacts of that, which I would argue is pretty true. And so we talked again in our last episode about sustained engagement. So a lot of the people I ended up photographing in Cabrera were people that I knew personally um, and, you know, worked with. There's a young girl who, um, you know, ended up kind of being the subject of a lot of my photographs on the cover of my thesis who, you know, I would go to school with and and talk to her principal and she was having seizures and we, you know, got her some medical care and I, you know, went home with her a bunch of times and we cooked in her home and I met her family. And those type of engagements, I think, make photographing feel a more personal and make the subject feel more comfortable, which is really important. And so with things like that, also, you have to talk about, you know, as you photograph children, are you on their level? So when I photograph kids, I make sure that I'm photographing, you know, face to face. I don't photograph down um, and things like that, just to make sure that as you engage with people, you're treating them with as much decency and respect as you possibly can. And in Cabrera, that's a little bit rarer because Cabrera is like the number three place on TripAdvisor to visit when you visit Nairobi. So it's like, you should go see the giraffes. You should go see, you know, the monkeys in the forest and make sure you go visit the poor people and take lots of good photos. Um, and slum tourism, as it's called, is a very, very prevalent thing in Cabrera. And I don't know if you want to talk a bit about your experience with slum tourism, because I have a lot of negative thoughts um, if you want to chime in. Oh, my goodness. I mean, you could spend forever on, on the negatives of taking people's pictures surreptitiously or taking it and walking away because of the the empowered nature of the tourist. But I, I guess there is another side. And, you know, one of the things that comes up when you talk with a lot of the vendors in places like Cabrera or similar conversations in Goma um, in the in the Congo, where there's a huge number of vendors, is the kind of the back and forth and conversations about what would make what would taking the pictures 
be valuable for the community. And so in a number of times, people will say, both please take a picture of this because I want to show that there's no sanitation here. There's, you know, the power lines are never fixed wherever else, but also send me back a copy. And so one of the pictures we'll post is right out in front of the Human Needs Center, where we talked about last time, where Shadi and I have both worked. Um, One day, um, uh, a man came in with two camels, and he was going to offer the kids camel rides back and forth. And so I took a bunch of pictures of both the man, the camels, and the kids, and I sent the pictures all back to the adult. I didn't know how to reach all the children. That's a little hard when there are 60 (laughs) of them around. But I sent them back to him. And one of the pictures is one of my absolute favorites. And it's, you can't actually see the camel. You can see the, um, the saddle that the kid is on. But this little kid in his bright red school clothes is just beaming. And he's on the back of the camel. And I asked him, had he ever seen a camel before? And he said, no. Um, but he got on a camel. We sent the picture back. And now this guy does camel rides for profit, not in Kibera. He actually does it in other parts of, 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 of Nairobi. So right. the number of negative stories is huge. But when you see kind of a positive engagement, when people want part of the story told, and when you, the outsider, can facilitate, those are the cases where it feels like you're actually doing something helpful. But it's almost always orchestrated by the locals, not by you as the outsider, Mzungu or not. Um, it's right. almost always done by the community says, yeah, we're trying to get this story to the Kenyan newspapers. Take this picture and show it. It highlights the lack of sanitation, the lack of security in our streets, whatever else. And those are the cases they are more rare where you feel like you're actually aiding the dialogue. Well, even in, I mean, in Cabrera in general, I think you talk to a lot of people who who want you to photograph the area and they want you to show what it's like. And, you know, even the three photographs that I mentioned earlier, the Napalm Girl, Alan Curdy, and the Vulture, you know, all three of those photos had big impacts and important impacts. Um, And the question becomes kind of like, where do you draw that line? And how do you take these images and how do you make them in the most ethical way possible, both to help kind of a broader population of people who are represented through this image, but also for the individual that is being photographed. And I still don't have a great answer. So I guess we're just going to talk about it very generally. But, you know, I, I don't know. I don't know how you can balance these things all the time. I don't know how you can balance things like war photography, which, again, are often very important. It's a pretty dangerous and scary job. Um, but again, important to show and document what is happening in other places. But how do you do that and maintain the humanity of the subjects, I think, becomes this like very interesting question that a lot of photographers have grappled with, um, both successfully and unsuccessfully. And I guess one thing that, you know, sort of I think shapes my view on this is that um, my father-in-law, your grandfather, um, is a both a doctor, but he's also a human photographer across Mm -hmm. Africa. And I think one of the interesting features of engaged photography is that there are people like myself who take probably as many scenes of the streets, of the mountains, whatever else, as a people. Your grandfather exclusively focuses on people. And he sits down and he's taught me a lot. And so he and I traveled in Uganda together. 
we would sit for a while and he would talk with people, come up, and only after that would he engage. Now, that's a far different cry because certainly when you look at the vulture picture or something, these are not ones where there can be a long conversation. You had to make the choice to take it or not in that moment. But there are definitely lessons out there about how engaged photography and kind of the service of people is a way to serve the graphic tell the story side, but also engage usefully with it. And I wish that was the majority. That is unquestionably, that's the minority of pictures that are taken in this. Yeah. Way. But it does set a standard that I kind of think about a lot in this, in this, in this dialogue. Yeah. I think, I'll, so I think my grandpa is actually a really wonderful example of this because he, you know, largely photographs in areas where he can speak the language and he's from and can really engage with people. And, um, you know, my first trip to Nigeria was to go see a photo show of his photographs. And I think that's also really important. And obviously, it's a little more upscale than every photograph you're taking. But, you know, to go back and show those photographs in that space. And so, you know, I, I took that from him. I went back and displayed the photographs of Kibera in, in Kibera. And something I did that I found really important was I actually had people kind of from different connections of Kibera react to the photographs and talk about them. Um, and so, you know, people like my dad and I can talk about these photographs and be like, oh, the composition is beautiful. It's so cool to talk about this element of life. And then you'll talk to someone who, who lives there and it's like, that's a cool photograph, but, but why are you showing this instead of that? Right. Um, why are you showing the dirty downside versus the good part of the community? Or why are you showing us as opposed to showing the police, the Ascari, um, the security guards who we fear? So there's no question that we see these differently and the part of the part that you're hunting for as a photographer is not the thing that people who are living the experience are looking for to be illustrated in lots of cases right exactly and then the other thing i want to mention um is working with local photographers and i think that was something that also really shaped my experience and i'll link a couple people and there's one linked in the last show notes as well his name is frederick we worked in together in kenya he did a lot of the national geographic ballet photography in kenya um but i found it really important to talk to and work with people who who live and grew up in kibera so i worked with um a man who goes by kibera stories brian um you know, who's a very well-known photographer in the area. There are other people and kind of media orgs. The Human Needs Project itself runs photography classes. And so working with those, um, you know, students and asking them what images they find important to capture in Cabrera was really helpful. And I think that type of engagement, again, as we mentioned in our last episode, there's obviously so much to be done in your own backyard in terms of aid and help that can be done. But if you are going to be going elsewhere to do it, making sure that connection is sustained and you're working with local people and making sure that their voices are being heard in kind of whatever projects you're doing, be it nonprofit development or photography of the area. And I guess I'll, I'll circle us back a little bit to slum photography and slum tourism, um, which is obviously helpful in certain ways. It's important to show kind of what the Kenyan government is doing and allowing to happen. It's important for people to step outside of themselves and recognize kind of other people's living situations. People do donate. It brings money into the community. But as someone who has kind of tagged along on a couple slum tours for the purpose of photography, I get very angry very quickly. And I think what I end up seeing a lot is people who come in 
and do really treat it like a tourist attraction or like they're coming to visit a zoo. And you'll have people come in. And we mentioned this um, last episode that the little kids in Cabrera go, Mzunga, how are you? But a lot of that is because when people come in on these slum tours, they will bring bags of candy and like literally throw candy to the kids. Like you're, again, like feeding animals at a zoo. And like that's very much the impression I get of the way that these people view Cabrera. Um, I was on a tour once where someone brought in an iPad and like gave it to a little girl and took a photo with her and like handed her. And I was like, that is such a weird form of like self, I don't know, like, like aid that makes you feel good because there's not really a huge purpose or impact. And maybe there is for this little girl. You don't know what her access to like charging is or whatever, or like if she can actually use it for anything. But giving an iPad is such like a, we did this for the people kind of mood. And, you know, they felt so self-satisfied. And I was like, had you just donated that money to a nonprofit in the area? Had you, you know, helped people dig a new borehole? Had you fixed someone's roof? Like, there are such bigger impacts that can be done with that money than kind of the level of tourism that you're doing. And I guess I just always feel very weird watching these experiences or people drop in and it feels like they just take photographs to go post on their Instagram and and never talk about them again. You can dig through the Cabrera Instagram tag. You can see a lot of my like our personal friends on there. And it's very interesting because, you know, I, I dug through that hashtag and I translated a lot of these captions and showed them to my my friends. And there's one um, of this guy who, who works with us named Marcus. And this person's like, Marcus dreams of a new world. He blah 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 blah. Like this is so weird. And like half of these facts aren't even correct. Like you made up a background story for this man that you wanted to post on Instagram. I just think that level of being there can be harmful. I guess if that's the story you're going back to tell. And I I really struggle with you know the good that it brings to the community, but also the negative kind of stories that people go tell later. Yeah, there's no question that that both the the huge inequality of resources sets up the situation where you can parachute in, you've flown in on a plane, you know, business class flight in, you're you're in Nairobi for 24 hours, you include your Kibera slum tour, and conveniently, it's very near the Nairobi National Park, so you can go from Kibera in the morning, Kibera in the afternoon, to go do animal photographs. There's no question. And on the other hand, that I think the tension you're struggling with is that people are definitely more generous when they feel a connection, and so if that dynamic, as shallow as it is, also leads to a connection. In some cases, a sustained engagement, and the great cases. I would say like the founding of Human Needs Project, um, the person who founded it did a movie in, in Nairobi, our friend, and she then decided to set this up. And so the tension is that tension is, is real and it's hard to figure out what level of this kind of exploitation leads to positive action, what level of this exploitation is just plain exploitation. It's it's a hard one. Um, and I was kind of struck by an example. I did a filming in Kibera of people making uh, briquettes of fuel. And when you think about briquettes of fuel in the US, you think about how charcoal in a bag you get, it's a Kingsford or something. Here, they mix wood or dung with mud in, in like coffee cans, and then they dry them out in the sun. And when the economy is going well, there's more wood and dung. And when the economy is going 
poorly, there's more dirt in there. And that's what you burn. And so we were setting up to this picture and the woman who was making the charcoal briquettes turned to the film crew. And we'll put a picture up with the woman and the film crew there. And she said, you guys have a lot of stuff to take my picture. Um, and there she is in clothes that have, you know, she's certainly had them for years. She's making briquettes. This is kind of one of the lowest income things you can do. And yet here you have a $3,000 camera staring at her and an HD camera, blah, 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 right. with the right boom and the mic. And it's just so incongruous. And she was immediately aware, you know, there's a benefit both to the community and to me having taken this picture, but the inequality in just that scene, let alone all the infrastructure to get there is just so large. So it, it right. just keeps this tension alive in terms of not being able to figure out how to how to level that playing field. Yeah. It's such an interesting dynamic and it's so, it's hard to figure out. And it's, you know, every photograph is obviously different and every experience with different people is obviously different, but it is interesting that I think a lot of photographers try to set this like baseline of ethics um, to to be in these spaces and then to do this. Um, And again, it is like also personally impactful. It's obviously not about, the photographer in a lot of ways, but it is hard to like take these photographs and leave. And, uh, you know, you've mentioned the $3,000 camera. I sit there and I'm like, if I sold this camera, we could feed tons of people for a good number of days. And, you know, where does that trade off exist for people? And I think the other side is that you, you do have clear cases where those images, disturbing, graphic, beautiful, whatever else, were actually the basis of a sustained engagement. I think right. most of them are the other way, but the cases where that story that gets into Reuters or the New York Times or whatever else really does change the narrative around the war, as you mentioned in the beginning, or in this case, the narrative around how close the poverty is, not just in Nairobi, but you know, right here where I live in, in Oakland or San Francisco, you can travel literally a couple hundred meters and you go from fancy zip code to low end. So one picture that I'll put on on our thing is there's a billboard downtown Oakland and it shows a picture of two children. It has their zip code above them. And by changing one digit in the zip code, you have a 10 year different average life expectancy. And it's just kind of dramatic how close how proximate you can be and yet how totally separated we are. And of course, that's that's kind of one of the features of modern life, but it's just dramatic how, how side by side and how easy it is to ignore these things without the images and the stories that you get from quality photojournalism. Yeah. So, so I guess I wanted to raise another point on this. Um, and photographs, as we mentioned, kind of bring you into the story. They, they, you know, do help with engagement in a lot of times. But the question is, is that engagement correct, I guess? And so there's a professor at Yale named Paul Bloom. I don't know if you've heard of him. He wrote this book called Against Empathy. And the title is a little bit more, I guess, intense. And I think the book actually is in itself. But it does bring up this question of, you know, when you are engaged with someone via empathy, you can care more about them. And, you know, you see a lot of these pictures of things like starving African children, which I think is kind of the go-to, that cause people to engage from this point of empathy. And for me, that means I often ignore 
like the things in their own backyard. Um, you know, empathy is exhausting. We talk a lot about stuff like doom scrolling on the internet right now. It's very easy to get caught up with how hard everything is and you feel this empathy, you know, in terms of empathy is picking up other people's anxiety. Um, and that is different from compassion, according to Bloom. Um, and I guess I'm curious if you think that the way we use this empathy is negative in any in any way, because I think I struggle with this a lot. I think it's 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 definitely something you struggle with, and and I guess I I have a, I have some trouble with the kind of the, the terminology aspect of it, because the idea that empathy is this emotional kind of knee jerk response for which you can maybe sustain it briefly but can't do it long term, whereas compassion is somehow the more reasoned long-term version. I have a little problem with that kind of distinctions, but it is the it is true. I mean, I work on climate change and there's no question that if you show one, 10 or a hundred pictures of stormed ravaged cities in the U.S. South or in Bangladesh, that the first couple get a strong response. And then after that, people kind of just, okay, I, I tick it up. I get it. I'm going to, I know yeah. this is there. So this difference between the immediate knee jerk, which is a kind of a terrible term for it, the emotional response, and then your sustained analytic view of how can I actually engage and improve the situation. I'm not sure I see that as kind of a, a clear distinction. I do think that going from empathy to compassion is a process of education. And I think one of the features that does work is when you use that opportunity to teach yourself about other people's settings and other people's situations. Yeah. And his overall argument is that, you know, making ethical judgments based on empathy is bad moral reasoning. And like you become less sensitive to suffering of bigger numbers of people because you feel so personally engaged with like this one person. And I do see that, right? Where you're like, oh, and I, I feel this personally. Um, you know, I photographed this young girl, Javon, for a long time, and I gave a lot to her and her family when I probably could have spread that out and been more maybe impactful for more people. But my empathy, you know, kind of cued me into this one person. And so I see where he's coming from. Full disclosure, I took his class and I argued against him a lot, a lot. Um, so I do think that it's an interesting, an interesting premise, especially kind of with the way it's framed. I would argue that it's kind of like a clickbait book title. You know what I mean? Where you're like, the, the title is kind of there to lure you in um, to argue against him. I mean, but truth I, be said, the best book titles are clickbait before clickbait was a thing, right? Titles that make you think about it in a way that encapsulates part of the narrative. That's actually also considered good writing, right? No, I think he did a great job. I mean, I think he did a great job on the publicity of this book. Um, I think, and I think as you read it, it becomes kind of more clear what he's saying. But it is a book and a title that I think you have to enter into with a fair bit of like, what's happening here? Um, but I think it's an interesting premise, right? Like, do these photographs cause you to engage in a way that's not as helpful? Um, you know, I think the three that we mentioned, Napalm, Alan Kurdi, and The Vulture, kind of had big widespread implications. But personally, I, I don't know if my empathy works in the quote unquote right way as I photograph. I mean, I don't think I know either. I do know that the the times when I feel like the process was most helpful was when an image made me go back and do the backstory and do the research and understand 
was the problem here due to politics? Was it due to infrastructure? Was it due to what Kenya's called Majimboism or tri- tribal differences? Mm-hmm. There's There are times when I feel like you take the image and you put it away and go look at it later and you learn a lot more from it than just, oh, this is a nice composition with nice colors and a, and a neat kit in it. Later on, you go back and say, oh, now I see you know, in the background, there's the same menu in two different dialects. Or you say, oh, I now I'm seeing there's a bigger story behind it. And Well, we have a real example. We, I mean, you and I, you know, studied a lot about the MCA, which is kind of a local political election because I took this photograph where these girls are crossing a river. I think that's probably going to be the cover of this episode. Um, they're crossing kind of a, a muddy river and it caused us to ask a lot of questions about, you know, what does this election look like? Why are they campaigning so heavily here? And I think that was such an, an important addition to our understanding of Cabrera, at least for me at the time and maybe for you less That's so certainly. since you've got, you know, more experience there. But, you know, that photograph, I think really for me made the political implications of what was happening in Cabrera very clear. And I think that's where you, as you mentioned, it's really cool to say, I looked at this photograph and I ended up learning more or like, that's one of the photographs that I was like, I really want to come back here. This is such an interesting place. Um, and I kind of wonder, you know, cause with that picture, um, you know, where the, the, the kind of bright beaming faces look, looking up at you from this muddy kind of sewage filled river. Um, it is an interesting scene. I don't know if I would have gone back and done all the homework if the picture hadn't been so captivating. And so there is an element of the, you know, the, the quality of the photograph, the professionalism, whatever you want to call it, that catches your attention when you go through the thousand pictures you have from a given trip. So, oh, what's going on in this picture? I wanted to learn more. And then we asked people and they told us about all the banners for the different political parties that were flying on everything yeah. from homes and buildings to telephone poles. Those backstories get lost so often or just never get heard so often unless it's this kind of engaged photography that you were mentioning. Yeah. I don't know. I think I think what's hard is I never have a right answer for this. I think my like overall moral framework is pretty set in stone in life, which is a very kind of do no harm kind of overall mindset. But with like the little things like this, I think I waver a lot on what it should look like and how you should do this in the best way. Um, I'm really grateful to have like been able to explore that in Cabrera, which I think is a place that is so wonderful. And the people that I have met and worked with have been so engaged and helpful and kind. Um, and I- I'm grateful to have had this experience there. I, I, again, always feel bad when you're like, I feel like I learned photographing these people. Um, but I think I did. And I'm, I'm really grateful to have had that experience in, in Cabrera. I mean, that was a lot of eyes, but one feature about Cabrera is that it's a place that you and I go back to over and yeah. over again. And so that doesn't forgive any of the the poverty voyeurism, but it does mean you feel more responsible for what you do, not only pictures, but community engagements, going back for the events, the Cabrera's Got Talent. You know you're going to see the same people yeah. again and again. And they're going to ask you, they're going to say, you did or you didn't send me the picture. Or what do you use it for? Was it on a thesis? Was it a part of one of your PowerPoints and slideshows? So you do feel like there's a, there's that little higher level of you know, accountability. Oh, 
And I guess like the last kind of thing I want to say about Cabrera overall is I think it's just such a wonderful place. I'm I'm always blown away. I think the community is incredible. It's one of my favorite places in the world, which I think is very interesting because again, I get the drop in, drop out kind of experience. But there's a lot of bad about Cabrera on the internet. Um, you know, if you've been listening to this episode, I would hope that you would want to go look more at Cabrera. Um and I just think that there's a lot of bad that can be seen. And sometimes I feel like you have to search for the good, uh, which I don't always appreciate. But it's just such a wonderful place, kind of no matter what, like, I mean, it's a place things where things are happening right. to it. I mean, it's a place where people know they are at a huge disadvantage and they're working and trying to set rules of engagement, both internally in the community and with outsiders that will uplift the community. And they don't always work, but there's a clear sense. Um, and we said in the last episode that this is a place where people generally do not beg. And when someone does beg, it's often because they're inebriated or something and they're kind of not in their yeah. thinking. They don't have their Cabrera thinking hat on at that <laughs> moment. Um, but it's a place where they're very aware. They're within one kilometer of kind of the center of power of Nairobi. And here they are not in it. But they are trying to do a social experiment. They're trying to uplift the poorest part of town. Yeah. And and there's so much community accountability. I think a lot of the dangerous stories you hear about Cabrera from, you know, 10, 20 years ago. And the community really banded together to turn that around. Um, I remember once <laughs> on an early trip, I was walking around and... I don't know. I was like, I think my dad's worried about, you know, me getting all my camera gear stolen. And someone's like, if you get your camera gear stolen in this neighborhood, I have X number of friends and we'll go down, we'll find the person and we'll get your stuff back. They're like, get it stolen. Like, it'll be fine. Um, and you we just don't know what happens to that person after they get it back. That's, that's the challenge. Here. But I mean, like, I just feel like we, I think the first time we went to Cabrera or I went to Cabrera with you, I think we were very kind of wary and, you know, you're very kind of on edge for the danger and stuff like that. And it's a place that I think people get comfortable so quickly because there is such a wonderful community and entrepreneurship and people are really wonderful in so many ways. And so I just want to highlight that. We're going to be linking, again, tons of things in our show notes. And if you do want to personally get involved, um, the Human Needs Project, I think, will always accept donations that goes towards things like wash services in particular, so a lot of water provision, laundry, there's a cafe, they're now doing hydroponic classes, they provide water to an extra elementary school, they're talking about putting in electricity and um, power lines. They're, I mean, the, the project is doing so much, and so we'll link them, and you can donate on their website as well if you would like to, um, but there's obviously no pressure there. There are tons of other orgs in Cabrera as well um, that are doing similar and incredible work. I may just thank everyone for tuning in. It was fun to get to do a two-parter. And we'll probably do more of these, but th th this was, at least for us, a lot of fun. Yeah, no, this was great. All right. Do you have a question, Dad? I do. And I'm not going to ask you, like, what's your favorite junk food, fast food? I'm going to ask you, McDonald's. what's your favorite in Cabrera snack? Oh, that is such an easy question. Okay, so I eat the same thing almost every day in Cabrera. I am... Um, First of all, like just so into Kenyan food, I came back and tried to make skooma, which is like collard greens or like shaved kale, basically, um, for like months. And it's never going to be as good as my Kenyan mom, Mama Evelyn's. Um, but outside of like my daily meal, which is like a stew and then ugali, which is 
the Kenyans like starchy staple. Polenta, um, basically. Polenta. Um, the best Kibera snack of all time, and not even a question, is sugarcane. Oh, you're so wrong. What? Sugarcane is so good, but the best Kibera no, snack of he's... all time is the roast corn that you have to no. pull the kernels out of the cob. I do love the roast corn. Don't get me wrong. I get it as I'm heading home at the end of the day. But I think that there is nothing like watching a soccer game in the middle of Kibera with your 20 cent bag of sugarcane, they cut it down for you. The guys who cut the sugarcane are so impressive and they cut it without ever touching it into a bag and they shave it down. Sometimes when you're with real Kenyans, they'll like eat it straight from the stalk. They're like, oh, just like shave it down with your teeth and bite through it. And I'm like, yeah, I don't know how you guys are doing that. I get mine shaved down by the guy in the little wheelbarrow. Um, but that is the best Kenya snack. So I have to stay with those corn kernels that have that, because the whole smell of Kibera is, is that mixture of corn and sanitation problems. Yeah. But it's the corn that sticks out to me. But anyway, that's that's an easy Maybe one. Maybe I did lie. The best Kenyan snack is actually when Mandazi? you go to the when you go to the when you go <laughs> when you're with a local and they take you to get some um changa, which is Kenyan moonshine, and you sit around and you sit with the kind of older men and elders of the village. They often bring out the legend brandy, which is one of the worst alcohols I have ever had. And the best alcohol is Tusker, which is the best beer of all time. Though I'll stay with my corn. The worst part about Tusker is that people drink it warm. They'll be like, oh, I'd like a warm beer. And that blows my mind every day. Anyway. Um, but yeah, there's, oh my God, so much food in Kibera. But other than that, thank you guys so much for tuning in. This is super fun for us to talk about. Obviously, we both love Kibera. Um, a lot. So it's great to have this time to talk about it. Thank you all. All right. Goodbye.